I'm going to begin with our reading today um, out of the gate in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read the word, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go to work. In the series that we are in, we are going to read from Revelation 3, uh, beginning in verse 7. All right, these may not be up on the screen. I didn't really ask those guys. So if you just listen for just a moment, and then we'll break it down in just a little bit. To the church in Philadelphia, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, we are anxiously awaiting uh, the letter that you have written to the church in Philadelphia. Each week it leaves us on the, the edge, the edge of our seats waiting to hear your next letter. And I pray that we are receiving it um, as intimately and personally as you wrote to these churches because they are for all churches. So in this letter today, Lord Jesus, would you uh, inform our minds of who you are? Would you let us know your character, your nature, your promises, your encouragement, your sovereignty? Inform our minds. And uh, God, I pray that that would move into a place that it would just inflame our hearts for you, or create a greater love and a passion for you. And then it would ultimately activate our hands and our feet and our mouths for your name and your glory. God, give us great encouragement today. This passage, this letter is saturated with promises and encouragement from you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that it hits home today, that it does nourish our souls as it's intended to do. And we love you. And we worship you through the teaching of your word right now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right? So obviously, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. We're going to walk through this passage together today. Uh, but we are in a series called Seven, uh, where we're walking through Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Notice I said Revelation and not Revelations. There's no S on the end of that. Sometimes we say that. This is Revelation. Uh, but we are walking through, uh, we're in the fifth church. We've completed the fifth church last week. Matt uh, completed that fifth one. Today we're in the sixth church. But we walked through the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, which was the loveless church. Uh, Smyrna, the faithful church. Pergamum, the compromising church. Thyatira, 
the Tolerant Church. Uh, and then last week, as I said, Matt did a wonderful job leading us to Sardis, which was the dead church. Today we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia, and we're going to call this one the Sending Church. All right. Now, a little bit about the city of Philadelphia before we just dive into the church immediately. The city of Philadelphia, just kind of where we're at here, 38 miles southeast of, of Sardis, where we kind of were last week. And it was founded by two brothers originally, Eumenes and Attalus. And what the deal was is Attalus was ruling um, the city, but the Romans tried to influence um, Attalus to turn against his brother Eumenes and, and, and just reject him and kind of just stab him in the back, basically. But um, Attalus had a unique brotherly love for his brother. He would not turn. Uh, therefore, uh, that unique brotherly love clearly stirred on the name of Philadelphus, uh, which was the city of brotherly love. All right? So that's where we're kind of going with that and where that kind of came from. But a little bit about the city um, of Philadelphia. It was an agrarian city. Um, raisins and grapes were its cash crops. Um, there was a lot of volcanic activity around there, which made the, the soil very fertile for the crops, um, but it also lent itself to a lot of earthquakes in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, they repeatedly had to keep rebuilding the city over and over and over again. So just, you know, in addition to the, the physical challenges that were in the city of Philadelphia, they had spiritual ones. Um, as many of these letters, the Christians faced a lot of spiritual hostility. We know that uh, the presence of Caesar and Zeus worship was clearly there. Uh, there was also a, a very influential Jewish synagogue in the area that they were clearly hostile to followers of the way. So they, they faced some spiritual challenges there. Uh, but the, the, the city of Philadelphia, we're clearly not talking about the city in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're not talking about the one that we know here, uh, the very important and influential city in our American history, right? We know a little bit about that. We uh, know that the city of Philadelphia in 1776, the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, we know the Constitution in 1787. They're known for many things. They produced a lot of great things. And ultimately, they produced one of the greatest things, of course, which was the Philly cheesesteak, right? Can I get an amen right there? Yeah. Y'all can amen that. Where you, where's that every Sunday, huh? I'll amen the cheesesteak. Uh, but, but we know that those are some things about Philadelphia. But I think the, the most profound thing uh, that we appreciate Philadelphia for is clearly Rocky Balboa, right? I mean, <laughs> the Italian stallion, Rocky Balboa. Uh, in fact, if you have not seen all of the Rocky movies, uh, you really shouldn't even be able to be an American citizen uh, those who have ears, let them hear. This is an incredible, incredible story. All of them are awesome. Ex listen, Rocky Four, complete bust. We know that, all right? But uh, Rocky is still the man. He basically ended the Cold War by defeating Ivan Drago, right? Uh, so you're like, where in the world is he going with this? Is he going to exposit any text today? Is he talking about? No, here's why we bring up Rocky, because Rocky Balboa the, is the consummate underdog, right? And he is a great uh, mascot for the church in Philadelphia. We'll talk about that in just a moment. One of Rocky's quotes um, that he mentioned here is one of these things. He said this, that it's not how hard, uh, it's not about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you get hit and still get back up. And that describes the church in Philadelphia by all worldly standards, uh, weak, 
they were a ragtag bunch, uninfluential, unpopular. I mean, this massive underdog story. By all worldly appearances, they were not strong at all. But yet, that is not the judgment of Jesus Christ. They stood strong in the face of having little power. And he ultimately, at the very end... They just get punched over and over and over again. But they are committed to completing the mission of God. And he gives them only commendation in this letter. What seemingly is the weakest of all seven churches, by worldly appearances, receives the strongest commendation from Jesus. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. This church only made God smile. Now, this doesn't mean that they were a perfect church. It doesn't mean that at all because we know there's no perfect church because every single person inside the church is not perfect. So they had faults. They had issues. So when I read that right there, that gives me great encouragement in our church because we have issues. Every church does. We have flaws all the time. You might be a great fault finder in our church. But listen, the great encouragement here is that we can still have issues and yet God can still smile upon our church. So for me, that gives us great encouragement. And remember that God could be smiling upon us and we would want to receive a letter like this. All right. So let's get into this letter and then we'll break it down. Revelation will start in beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So we know that Jesus, each letter, he announces himself in different ways and fashions that's specific to that specific church. And here he trumpets himself as the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who no one can shut and no one can open this door. These Uh, These languages, these words here um, were referenced in the Old Testament. They were references to God, God himself. And now we here see uh, rightly appropriated to Jesus Christ because who God is is who Jesus is because Jesus is God. All right, so what does he say first? The Holy One. Number one, the, he's saying there's just one, the Holy One. And Holy One uh, communicates two things, sinless and separateness. All right, God is sinless and he is separate from us in these kind of ways. Number one, he is not, uh, we are sinful and he is sinless. So he's not like us in that way. He's a sinless savior. He is not creation, he is creator. So he's saying, I'm not like you. Right, And many times we often hear and make the mistake of saying that we were created in the image of God, which is absolutely correct. But we we twist that, and then we try to make God in the image of who we want him to be like, right? Well, my God wants me to be happy. My God, how can a loving God do that? My God is like a BFF to me. We make this mistake or can make this perpetual mistake of reducing God down to us. Let us be careful about not making God like us. He's nothing like us. We are created in his image, but he is not like us. He alone is the holy one, all right? And then he goes on to say he is the true one. This true one phrase here in reference to the Greek means genuine. 
faithful, uh, opposition to falsehood. He's saying, I am truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Because our world, where you live like I live, there's all kind of world philosophies on where you run to when life just smacks you in the mouth. You're looking for solutions to all of life's problems. And Jesus is saying, I'm the truth. Run to me. Don't run to meism or spiritualism or pragmatism, to Scientology, Oprahology. Don't run to those things because they're all false. I alone am truth, absolutely trustworthy, dependable, faithful, never wavering, unbiased. And everything that I say is always true, it's always right, and it's always for your good and for his glory. A a quick question here is when life does hit you in the mouth, right? When you're wobbly and wavering and searching for answers, where do you run to for truth? Do you run to your feelings, your emotions, what your experience would tell you? Do you run to your friends do you run to Facebook, to Google? Do you run to anything that you can get a, get a hold of just clinging to it? Listen, turn to Jesus every single time because he alone is the true one. And then he says here, the next description is that he is the one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and no one will open. This is a reference to Isaiah 22, 22. Two, uh, in there, there's a story. Don't have time to unpack. There's a story in there about a man named King Eliakim, who holds the key. Uh, this is a reference to Jesus being the key holders. Uh, in Revelation 1:18, he says, "I hold the keys to death and Hades." Right? In John 10, I believe here, he says that I'm the door. Whoever enters uh, through me might be saved. Here is what Jesus is saying right here. I am the key holder of heaven, and no one, no one gets into life now and eternal life with me later unless they go through me. Jesus is the only way to God. And this is what they will accuse us of in the days ahead. Exclusivity. You can only follow Jesus and get to heaven. We will remain steadfast and strong on that to the day that we die because we love people, not because we hate people. Jesus is the only way. So let me just pause for just a moment because I never presume that everyone here is a follower of Jesus. If you have never in your life bowed your knee down to the key master and the key holder of heaven, which is Jesus Christ... And all you're doing right now is you are banking on one day presenting a spiritual resume to God in the hopes that he would be impressed by your works, your giving, your generosity, your churchmanship, your religious upbringing, your baptism, your attempt at law keeping. If that's what you're banking on so that God would open up the door of heaven for you, you will not gain entrance into the kingdom of God. One single sin in your life has disqualified you from entry into his kingdom. 
Because entry is dependent upon perfection. And if you try to be perfect before, you know that you fall woefully short. But the good news of the gospel is very this. Jesus made a way for you. He became perfection for you. His law keeping, his works, his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection, he accomplished it for all of us who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And then for all that do trust in Christ, he imputes all of the perfection that God requires unto you and deposits righteousness into your account forever. Have you bowed to the knee of Jesus Christ in this life? Better to do it now. This is a loving invitation today, if you've not done that, that you would say, I want in. And if you're not in Christ, you don't get in to the kingdom of God. So I think what else he's doing here, he's reminding these people who possibly fear uh, that someone might snatch away their salvation. Like they're getting peppered from left and right from the Jews and uh, the Roman culture. And he, he's saying here that I'm the one who opens the door. No one can shut it. I can shut it and no one can open. Hey, church in Philadelphia, you are secure. I have opened the door of salvation for you and it will never, ever shut in your face. Your salvation is secure in me. When he opens the door of salvation for you, he never, ever, ever shuts it. You can't shut it. Satan can't shut it. No power on earth or above can shut the door. Only Jesus Christ. All right? So I think here, we wanna, well, I want to keep going because we're going to make a transition into some great encouragement for us today. And I, I think it's been an encouragement for me. But let's continue in verse 8, and I'll tell you what I mean here in just a moment. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So here, really, there's a, just a brief description of all that we know about the church in Philadelphia. There's not an exhaustive list of all the things that this is all we get here. The first thing he says, I know your works. So once again, with his sovereign eyes, he sees their deeds and they're good. They're working and toiling hard for the gospel and also for their church. They're serving hard. And he gets a commendation. I commend all of you who are serving in your church faithfully. Jesus knows your works. I also call you who are not serving in your church to receive the commendation from Jesus Christ. If you're not serving Man, don't you want the commendation of Jesus Christ? He knows your works. Is he going to commend them, commend you, or is he going to criticize you for your works? And he goes on. The next piece he says here is they kept the word. They kept the word because they knew the word. Like you can't keep the word unless you know the word. These Christians in the church in Philadelphia were Christians with Christian minds. You know what I mean? They had Christian minds. They weren't just Christians in spirit and in flesh. They had minds that thought like Christians. They knew their Bible. They studied their Bible. Do you study your Bible? The only way that you can keep the word is by knowing the word. 
And the next piece we see here is they did not deny his name. They were facing the furnace of affliction, mockery, people laughing at them for following Jesus Christ. But they kept his name. They would not deny Jesus Christ. A quick encouragement this week as you enter into antichrist cities and society, keep the word of God. Do not deny his name. That's the encouragement. We want these commendations here. Now, this next piece, I want to spend a few minutes here because he says they had little power. All right, I'm going to spend a few minutes here because I told you What this means is by worldly definition, like looking at the church from the outside, or looking at the outside into the church, they appeared to have very little influence. Remember last week in the church in Sardis, they had a reputation for being alive, right? So on the outside, it looked like it was thriving. People are coming to the parking lot. It looks alive, but they're really dead, right? Here's the exact opposite. From the outside, the church in Philadelphia looks dead. Lukewarm, really not anything going on. People in town aren't really talking about this ragtag bunch of church. They're not really movers or shakers. They're not popular, not influential in society. And yet, they had great power. This is the way it is in the kingdom of God. As he often uses the weak to shame the strong. So this church here, his... By all worldly standards, weak, but strong in Christ. So there's, a, there's this contradiction here, seemingly contradiction, between strength and weakness. Now, the Bible does speak clearly about strength being a good thing in many ways. Like, we should, be, we should want to be strong in some ways. I think physical strength is a good thing. We would all want to have stronger bodies. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Matt does hot yoga down at Planet Fitness. Planet Fitness. He, he, goes, he wants to be strong, right? Ask him about that when you get done. Uh, we, we want to be mentally strong. We want to be strong in the disciplines of the Lord. Our praying, our reading, and studying, and churchmanship. We want to be strong in those things. We want to be people who are strong in voices when we sing. That's a good thing. Right? There's a good form of strength according to the Bible. But then there is a seemingly where the Bible applauds weakness. Like there's, there's a place here that you'd be better that you would actually be weak. So we have to understand that just a little bit here. Why we see this church in Philadelphia being applauded for their weakness. Right? Well, let's look at a godly weakness that is to be commended. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, the Apostle Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So no human being might boast in the presence of God. And some of you know that the Apostle Paul would go on to say that God's strength is made perfect in his weakness. He went on to actually boast about his weakness. So there's a spiritual weakness that is to be applauded from the Bible. We are to be people 
who have a poverty of spirit, to have a humility of mind, a contrition of heart, an admission of weakness, a confession of sins, humility. This is a weakness that is to be commended and applauded. And I I think the issue here is when I was doing my study this week is I still see too many people, and, and the reality is I see our church better than just people in general, there's too many people still walking around with a veneer strength in their life. As if they could put on this front of strength before God and strength before others, and that God would just be impressed by that. Like, if I could just walk in here and walk in my life and just appear strong, and no one really knows that I'm really crashing and burning, that God will be impressed with me. And nothing could be farther from the truth. You walk in here on Sunday morning, hey, good morning, how are you doing? Pretty good, can't complain. You might have just lost your job and your marriage is on life support. It's all good. That is a veneer of strength. Well, how's your kids doing? Well, they're pretty good. The grades are all right. They made the team. While secretly they are rebelling against you, rebelling against God. They don't love Jesus and they don't love the church. And you post a beautiful picture on Instagram of your family. It's all peace and it's all calm. When the picture is over, it's absolute chaos in your home right now. Why do we do this? Why do we put on this faux veneer strength when God says, I don't need you to be strong. I am strong enough for the entire universe. All I need is your weakness, not your strength. And that has got to be something that we embrace as a church. The realness, the admission of weakness, because I think that's the place where God can actually use us. This church here in Philadelphia is weak by all worldly standards. They aren't afraid to boast in their weakness. And that's the church that God writes no condemnation about whatsoever. There's a great lesson for us to be learned right there, church. God does not need your strength. He requires your weakness. Man, run to God with your weakness. Run to your church With your weakness. This is a safe place for you to struggle. Do not walk through these doors on Sunday and think everybody's got it together except for you. This is a hospital for the sick. Didn't Jesus say that those who are well have no need of a physician, right? That's this place. Be safe to struggle here at our church. Now, I want to transition here because if we are, if we could see ourselves at the church in Philadelphia for just a moment, if we're truly walking with Jesus, we are, he knows our works, we're working well, we're keeping his word, we're not denying his name, like we're truly walking with Jesus like the church in Philadelphia, then here's what's going to happen. You and I will feel like outcast, underdogs possibly mocked, laughed at for following Jesus, not in the in crowd. Maybe you're, getting, maybe you're not making the team. You're not getting the job that you want and inspire to get. You're kind of being marginalized in life. You're often thought of as strange. 
And that's okay. And now, I'm not saying we should boast in being strange, of course. Y'all know that, right? Like some of us Christians are too good at being weird. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we might be thought of as being strange. And that's okay. That's okay because they did. They did. And here's the point of this, the, the rest of our time together. God's timing is always perfect. His words that are going to follow this are tailor-made for this church that desperately needs encouragement. And they are desperate words for you and me. We need some encouragement. I mean, we need some encouragement. Number one, we need encouragement because we walked through about five letters, and some of them have not been very encouraging, right? But God's timing is perfect, and he wants to breathe life into us today with some encouraging, encouraging promises that are filled in this text. I count six promises that I want you to walk through for the weak, the wobbly, the outcast, the strange, the marginalized Christian who's walking faithfully with Jesus. Here they are, all right? Track, I don't think they're going to be up, but you can write them down. The first one, he says this. These are all promises, right? Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, that language sounds a little bit different, or a little bit similar to verse 7 when he said that, right? Here's what Jesus is saying here in this context. That key holder of heaven who opens the heavenly gates of Hades and death now not only holds the key of salvation for the believer, he holds the key of service for the believer. Jesus is saying, because you've kept the word, because you're faithful, not denied my name, I'm going to open up a doorway of opportunity for you to share the gospel in Philadelphia. All the service you want, I'm just going to create this massive door opening for you to walk through and share the gospel. Now, what's ironic about this is the original uh, motivation, the purpose of the city in Philadelphia was to be a missionary city but it was to carry the mission of spreading the Greek culture and the Greek language in it. So it was supposed to be, hey, this city is going to start speaking Greek and being Greek in culture, and then it would just spread uh, throughout all of the city. And it eventually did that around 19 AD, and it became a Greek-speaking culture. And now hear what Jesus is saying. Three centuries, or three, uh, three centuries later, he says, I'm going to make this a, a missionary uh, city for the gospel to spread through there. An open door to share the gospel. And this is where this gets personal with us because this it city is where we live today. Nashville is an it city. We've grown uh, millions of people over the past five, ten years. Rutherford County is a part of that. God is opening up these doorways for us to have the opportunity as service of believers to step in and share the gospel. They are becoming a sending church because they've been faithful to the word. So I think here the message is this. I think the message is clear if we're tracking here. If you are not, if you're finding it hard to share the gospel with people, if you're finding it hard to find people to share the gospel with and opportunities to share your faith, then I believe 
There's a, probably a very clear um, connection here with how you are keeping the word of God and being faithful and not denying his name. If you're someone who's walking around and you don't see opportunities, uh, it's hard to share your faith, the chances are you are not keeping his word and those doors are shut. But if you are faithful and you keep his word, you do not deny his name, he opens a doorway of gospel opportunities for you to step into. And I've seen that over the past year. We put that Who's your one banner back there? I have heard so many stories about people. i got to tell you about my one. I'm sharing the gospel with my one this week. God saved my one over and over and over again. And I believe that is attributed to the faithfulness of so many people in our church that have kept the word. They've not denied his name. He's opened the door. Right? And then often we say, well, it's so hard to share the gospel. I don't know what they're going to say. They're going to reject me. I don't know enough. I'm not an extrovert. I can't do these things. The whole point in all of this, Jesus is telling the story in the church of Philadelphia, you might appear to be weak. You may not be lofty in speech and very educated. You're not really an influential in society. But I've opened the door, y'all, and I hold the key of salvation. You don't hold it. You aren't going to save anyone. You have limits. I do not. You be faithful and watch me open the door. I think that is what he's saying here. And this is an incredible encouragement to us that if we would just be faithful and keep the word gospel opportunities, we would be continue to be ascending church. Like we're already ascending church, but we would continue to be used by God. Here are five more promises found in the text. And let's read these together. Revelation 3.9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of my city, of my God, of New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Five more promises for the weak, marginalized, wobbly, outcast, strange, the ridicule. Here's the next one. Enemies will bow at our feet, and they will know that we are loved. You see, here in the church in Philadelphia, as I told you earlier, it was an important synagogue. And they were filled with Jews who, were, uh, who opposed Jesus, and they were persecuting these Christians in the area. And Jesus is saying here uh, to them, uh, that, that they are not of him. They're from the synagogue of Satan. They're not really Jews. Um, here, you, we need to understand the theology behind our relationship with the Jewish people here. Jesus is not anti-Semitic. He doesn't hate Jews. He was a Jew, right? The apostles were Jews. Paul was a Jew. Our, our faith is rooted in the Jews in Israel. We've been grafted in. So we as Christians have this affinity for our forefathers who are the Jews. Let's make sure we're clear on that because there's many Christians that hate Jews, and that is so anti-God. 
But these specific Jews here, he says, they're not mine, they're Satan's. They're the synagogue of Satan, and they were attacking. So they felt that opposition, and Jesus is saying here, hey, one day, your enemies, those who mock you for following Jesus Christ, they will come, and they will bow at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Now, here in this context, let's make sure we're clear, he's not saying that they will come and worship us, What he's saying is this, that one day Christian vindication will be ours for all those who are mocked for following Jesus Christ and all those accusations, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're crazy, that one day, one day all of them will bow at our feet. Now they'll bow two ways. One way They will bow in glad salvation to Jesus Christ. They will come to us and they'll bow the knee and they'll look at us and like, you're right. You were always right. I can't believe it. I should have listened to you. You're right. I'm going to bow with you. Tell me about your God. That's one way that they'll bow. The other way will be in bitter submission where God breaks their kneecaps And he makes them bow. All people will bow to the name of Jesus Christ. He is king. You can bow now in glad salvation, or you will be made to bow in bitter submission. Better to bow the knee on earth. That's one of the promises to us. The second, or the third promise is this. He promises to keep us from the hour of, of the trial, all right? Now, one of the things here, this is where a lot of people with the different interpretations of Revelation, that people get into the rapture here. Well, the end times, there's going to be this hour of trial, and is it pre-trib or post-trib and all those kind of things. I think we could get lost in the weeds in, in, in that discussion. We're not going to go there. But I think what's happening here, if we look at the Scripture about when God says he's keeping his people from something, he's not taking them out of it. Right? Remember he said that he wanted to keep us in the world? He didn't just zap us away from the world. He wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. But I think here's what he's saying. I'm not promising to keep you from suffering and tribulation in this world. He says, I'm going to keep you in it. But I will protect you ultimately from the ultimate tribulation, which is the judgment of God. He says, you might face a lot of earthly tribulations, but the tribulation, he says, I'm keeping you from it. You are safe in my hands. He's not saying, um, once again, he's not saying that we won't suffer as Christians and face tribulation. But the ultimate suffering, the ultimate trial, we will never face. Now, the next one, the next promise is the crown. Because they have patient endurance, he has promised them a crown. Now, 
There are different beliefs and systems in regards to crowns uh, when it comes to heaven and future glory. There's five or six different crowns, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. We could get lost up in that as well. We can, I think we get in this idea that we're going to be running around heaven and you got five crowns and you got three and you got two as if there was like this covetousness idea that we're coveting one another's crowns in heaven, which is just ridiculous, right? Uh, this is not the crown that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the crown of salvation. You will have the crown of salvation because Jesus wore a crown of suffering. You receive a crown of salvation. Now, he's also not saying if you endure, if you're patient, if you make it to the very end, then you earn the crown of salvation. No, he's saying if you endure and you persevere to the very end, you will prove to be my disciples and worthy of the crown. All right, it's the perseverance of the saints. Uh, let's go to the next promise here. Pillar. He says, I will make you a pillar. Now, some of you, if you know your Bibles, you're like, pillar? That didn't work out good for Lot's wife. I don't know if I want to be a pillar, right? Here's the pillar that he's talking about. Uh, you see, the Jews were uh, consumed with building a physical temple uh, with the hands of men, right? They were building a physical temple unto God. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, I'm building a different kind of temple in my kingdom. I'm building it. And in this kingdom, you faithful Christians, you will be pillars in my kingdom. You will be mighty, fortress, standing strong pillars in my kingdom. But let's be careful here. These pillars aren't to support the temple, all right? God supports the temple. These pillars that he calls us, we are monuments in the temple, monuments of God's grace. So every believer died in Christ in this beautiful temple of God were all these pillars, and there's all these monuments all over the temple of God. And on these pillars, these monuments, is written the believer's epitaph, which is the next promise, the final one. On these monuments is written a threefold name of God. Threefold name. It says that he will write on us the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. In my new name. In other words, Jesus is saying this. On your epitaph, it reads, I belong to the Father. Heaven is my home and Jesus is my Lord. You know, Jesus does save us, gives us salvation. He gives us heaven. He gives us a crown. Enemies will bow at our feet and all these promises. But the greatest gift that Jesus gives us is his name. His name. Upon every believer's soul, he stamps the word, mine, 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 mine. And that is the gift of heaven, having the name and bearing the name of God. You see, as I told you earlier, every single promise is perfect and it lands exactly where it needs to land in Philadelphia. And for us today, this is 
perfect. Listen for just a moment. You say, it's hard to share the gospel with other people. Well, I've opened a door of opportunity for you that no one can shut. I have people that think I'm crazy. I have people that think that I'm wrong for following Jesus. One day, they'll say, you're all right. I'm facing tribulation all around me. I can't breathe. Take heart. I have kept you from the ultimate tribulation in your life. I feel like a loser. I mean, like my life is not, I don't feel like I'm winning right now. Take heart. I've given you a victor's crown. I feel weak. I feel wobbly. I'm walking around with a spiritual, maybe even a physical limp. Take heart. I will make you a mighty pillar. You might say, I feel alone, a nobody, insignificant. I don't know where I belong in this world. What is my purpose? God says, I have stamped the word mine, mine, mine on your soul. Life. This is the most encouraging thing for us as Christians to stay faithful, persevere till the end. And I think the main reason that this church endured and receives this commendation because they had a high view of Jesus. I said Rocky was the mascot, but it's really not Rocky. It's Jesus. Wasn't he the consummate underdog? Then the book of Isaiah tell us that he had no form and no beauty, that we should esteem him. He wasn't anything majestic to look at. By all worldly standards, weak, uninfluential, outcast, marginalized, homeless, Man, he was the definition of weak in the world. Beaten, mocked, laughed at. But he carried it to the cross. Completed his mission. Resurrected from the dead. By all worldly standards, he looked like the least powerful person on the planet at that moment on the cross, right? But he was the most powerful being in the universe. That is where we find our embracing of weakness because that was Jesus. When we embrace our weaknesses, we become a lot more like Jesus Christ. So I think if we can have this exalted view of Jesus Christ to love the Lord like this church did, we have to remember him. We have to exalt him. We have to celebrate him over and over and over again. And he knew that we would be a people that would be prone to forget, to exalt him, to remember what he did on the cross and celebrate him. So he gave us a couple of dramatizations to do in the church to help us remember one of those is clearly communion. So right now we're going to do that. We're going to exalt him. We're going to remember him. We're going to celebrate him. And, uh, and then we're going to end with a mighty charge of, of worship and praise and celebration